Hello and welcome to the Baseball Wisconsin Podcast. I am your host, Tim Gotzler. Now today's episode takes us into the fourth inning of Game 2, where we sit down with head baseball coach at UW-Whitewater, John Vodenlich. Now, Coach Vo is a great friend of the state of Wisconsin in the WBCA. Um, his resume is incredible. Two-time national champion, two-time you know, national coach of the year, um, 10-time conference coach of the year, uh, speaks at our clinic, recruits our Wisconsin kids, has Wisconsin guys on his staff, and has always opened his doors and his program to high school coaches and travel coaches across the state. Today's episode, um, we go into his background, um, you know, his days as a Warhawk a bit when he played, his time coaching as an assistant with Coach Mills, and you know, now entering his 18th season as head baseball coach in 2021, really going into the traditions, um, some of the unique exercises that they do, practice planning, player development, relationships, use of technology, recruiting, staff development, um, gets into the role of both the high school and the, the, the club coach and the best ways in which we can serve our players. Before we get started, just a reminder to subscribe and share um, as we really appreciate you spreading the word about these great episodes. Without further ado, head baseball coach at UW-Whitewater, John Bodenlich. Hey coach, how you doing today? Good, good. How are you? Great, man. Thanks, thanks for coming on the show. We, we love having coaches from all over our state and really happy that you could, you could carve out time for us. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Um, so give us some background. You know, give us some of your background. Where are you from? Give us your, your, your playing career. What type of player were you growing up? Uh, yeah. Go into that. Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I'm going to keep it as short as I can. I'll hit the highlights. But um, I'm a Wisconsinite, born and raised in Racine, Wisconsin. Um, I'm uh, born of two immigrant uh, parents uh, who defected from Yugoslavia in, in 1959. Uh, my mom was an Olympic uh, skier, my father, her coach. Um, and, and once they came here, you know, put basically put myself and my older brother in a good position, you know, to do what we love. My brother was very instrumental in my, my upbringing and um, my, my choice in sports. Um, I'm the first person in my family not to have played soccer. All right. And that was my brother's choice. He put me in baseball and football and hockey. And those were the, the things I did. Um, for, for the most part, most of my life, I viewed myself as an athlete, uh, playing multiple sports, uh, you know, definitely can, can understand the benefits of being involved in sports. Um, you know, my whole life, um, you know, I've had great, great people around me, um, you know, youth coaches like Jack Harrison, um, high school coaches like Tom Brandon, great guy at, at college, Jim Miller, who put me in a great position. And, and so, you know, when we get into this coaching piece, it, it's, I was influenced by so many great coaches and now I'm just trying to pay it forward. So, um, you know, I ended up going to Whitewater, playing at Whitewater, had a great career at Whitewater. Um, towards the end of my career, um, I planned on just, you know, taking my business degree and, and going into the to private sector. And Jim Miller, um, unbeknownst to me, uh, submitted my name and bio to Rawlings. And uh, Rawlings gave me a, a graduate scholarship uh, for, for uh, on-field and off-field excellence. So that 
was my kind of my seed money to go to go to graduate school. So that that was where I started to transition from from, you know, playing to coaching. And I will tell you, um, in the initial phases, coaching was no substitute for playing at all. I mean, it was not something we wanted. I, I really enjoyed. Um, but, you know, then I got an opportunity in the Northwoods League that summer. I then went back into playing uh, while I did that in Europe uh, for a season, uh, which was a, a wonderful experience. And then I came back home. And, uh, you know, at that point, I, I decided it was time to, like, get a real job. And, and, and you know, and so I, I became a director of recreation. And I picked that because I thought it would keep me close to sports, which has been a part of my life. And once again, it didn't fill the void. Uh, so I volunteered back with Coach Miller at college. I volunteered when I could. I was working full-time and volunteering. And then eventually, you know, four and a half, five years later, um, I got a job offer. And, um, and I took it. And I was at a small private school at Edgewood College. And uh, I loved it there. I loved the people there. I loved the opportunity I got. And then uh, just just basically two seasons after I got to Edgewood, Jim Miller, my college coach and mentor, um, offered me a job to come back to my alma mater. So um, I've only been away from Whitewater about six years of my adult life. I pretty much get, went there as, as an 18-year-old. And uh, other than six years, I'm still there. So in long or in short, I guess that's, that's really my story. And um, like I said, I've, I've just been very fortunate to be around great, great people and and they've been able to influence me and give me some give me some some knowledge and and um and an opportunity and that's really what it comes down to is I, I was able to get some some great opportunities and and do my best at you know carrying that on so you know all your time playing as a warhawk head coach how many years now how many years is 2021 season be? Yeah, I went, I went back, uh, 99, 2000. So I was, I was at Edgewood 97, 98, 99. And then I transitioned back to my alma mater 99. So I've been, I've been back at Whitewater since 99. Okay. So now like the storied program, like where were you guys, you know, where are you now? Give us like the flyover view of your program. Yeah. Um, so where are we now? You know, I'd like to think we're one of the best division three schools in the nation. Um, there's about 400 teams at the division three level that compete. Um, and, and, you know, almost every year we're in the top 20 uh, to start. Uh, the rankings don't necessarily mean a lot because it's more about where you finish than where you start. Um, but we've been just in, in the 20 couple years I've been there. Uh, we've been to the college world series seven times. I've been involved in seven of them, and um, and we've won two national championships. Uh, don't even know how many times we've won the league, but the vast majority of that time we have. And um, so, yeah, I, I feel we're in a really good position, um, nation nationally, and of course in the in the Midwest. And and uh, but you know, as you know, as a coach, it's not about really all of that all the time. It's it's uh, I definitely have a, a a greater vision than just winning trophies because that's that's not really what we signed up to do necessarily so but I've been blessed we've had we've had good people around me and, and a lot of success well I want to lean into that so you know on, as an outsider looking in all the trophies the championships you know, guys playing pro ball like if it's more than that then what is it what, what is more than baseball in your role how do you look at that um 
Well, for me, originally, it was winning. And if you can imagine, right early on out, we had some really great success. And, and I think in my, my first year as, as the head coach, we went and finished third in the nation. And the next year, we won the national title. Well, by 2006, I can tell you I was not a, a fun guy to be around if we weren't winning or being close to a national title. And uh, it was kind of that time where I said, okay, if, if only one team can win each year and, you know, I got close in 04, I won it in 05 and 06, we didn't get a bid to the NCAAs and now I'm miserable. I said, I don't know if I can live 20 years like this. So there's got to be more. And of course, any coach that's been doing this a while and, you know, will tell you it is about the people and the relationships you develop throughout the way. It's about the process. It's about helping young men. And if you coach women, young women to be all they can be on the field and off the field. So for me, it was, it was, um, I stepped back and it was less about wins and losses and more about the whole picture, the whole picture of what I wanted to do at Whitewater. And, um, and you know, that that's been discussed so many times. I mean, whether you go back to John Wooden or whatever, he'll tell you that I think it, you get into coaching because about because of you and you quickly stay in coaching because you enjoy influencing others. And I'm trying to give the types of things back to my players that all those coaches I mentioned gave me. And, um, and I love doing it and it's fun. And uh, I guess we need a job, right? You got to have a job. So you might as well have a job that you're passionate about. So I guess, in sh once again, that's, that would be my description of what we're trying to do. So, that 06 season seems like that, that linchpin season, right? Somewhere, something, did something happen? Was there a moment in that 06 season? Was it not getting the bid? Was there a point in the season when you realized that you had to step out of it? Do you remember a moment? Well, I remember being really disappointed about not getting a bid. We're 31 and, and 11 and, uh, you know, the national champs and they chose not to keep us in there. So so yeah, I was like, oh my God, this is outside of my control. We've, we put together a good product, a good team. We, we, we performed and they still didn't put us in the tournament. And I guess for me that it was probably that realizing that I, I, I was going to have free time on my hands earlier than I ever had before. And um, that along with the fact that, you know, by that time I was into my second kid and my wife, you know, told me often at that time that I was pretty miserable to, to be with. So um, you know, I was not a happy guy because for me, it was about winning. It was about only winning. And if you didn't win, who cared? Right. So, so yeah, I, I think not getting in in 06 was a huge deal to me. Um, and also the realization that maybe I'm pretty good at this and I could do this long-term, but you can't do that if you're dead and if you have a heart attack and, and, you know, I mean, for me, it was, it was an unhealthy situation first, but more importantly, it was like, okay, um, I know I coached my ass off at Edgewood and we never won a national championship. So what was I, all of a sudden I was a good coach because, you know, I came to Whitewater. And of course the answer is if I'm the same coach, I had better players at Whitewater and not enough time at Edgewood. So um, yeah, I think it's all those things. And I think we all as coaches, um, I know you're relatively new in this, but we all as coaches, I think go through that uh, career wise. And, and ultimately we want to make a difference. Um, you know, in our student athletes' lives. And, and that's what keeps me grounded. Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Because, you know, like, I think a lot of coaches get caught up in, in that validation and, you know, and, and that, that external 
validation, looking for wins and, and everything else and, and thinking they come up empty every year. Right? So now take this into your program. Like, you know, as a culture builder, you know, guys that paid for you are, are like brothers, rest their lives are standing up each other's weddings. I mean, how do you cultivate that environment? What unique things are you doing in your program to create that brotherhood? Yeah, well, I, I think it started, you know, with our vision. And I say our vision because Jim Miller was with me every step of the way. We started this together. Um, unfortunately, he's not here to, to share it with me anymore. But, um, you know, he was a mentor and, a, and, a, and a, a college coach mentor and then a friend. And his wife was a big part of my life as well. I mean, we were they were like my Whitewater family. So we started this together. And I think, you know, the vision we had and the vision I had for certain was I started thinking back of growing up and who who a normal, typical Wisconsinite wanted to play for, right? And, and for sure, from a football standpoint, I think if you're a football player in the state of Wisconsin and you get an opportunity to go play for the Badgers, that's a pretty cool thing, right? That's, that's big time. Um, I don't think I grew up thinking about being a Warhawk. You know, I, I was thinking about Arizona State. I was thinking about Vanderbilt. And I think in some degrees, the teams may have changed but almost all of us as young boys thought about, shit, would it be great to play for the Packers? Absolutely. It'd be pretty cool. And uh, recently in baseball, it's, it's Vanderbilt, right? Who wouldn't want to play for Vanderbilt? What a great place. Well, what is it about Vanderbilt that makes it such an awesome place? And if you start thinking about it, you start to realize what young men and women aspire to do in sport. God, Vanderbilt's great because they have great coaching. Tim Corbin, personal friend. Um, wow, what, a, what an impressive, that, that, that guy's really impressive. Good, good person, great coach, and uh, always gives back to, to you know, small-time coaches like me. So good coaching. They wanted, they wanted great facilities. God, what a great vision, man. You get to go to Vanderbilt and play. You want a bunch of programmatic success. Winning's better than losing. No matter what anyone tells you, it's better, right? Um, Vanderbilt wouldn't be Vanderbilt if they lost all the time. All right. Memories, making memories, you know, thinking back and saying, God, this is a really cool place. All right. And then if you go back to the example of Wisconsin, what does Wisconsin have when it comes to the alumni? Very supportive, all in alumni. All right. That's that for sure donate and give back to the program, but are there to support their athletes even after they graduate. So you look at all those elements and for me, I say, okay, well, why is it available at UCLA in Oregon and Oregon State, but not Whitewater? Or why not another D3? Well, it's usually because if you want to play at Vanderbilt, you run a little faster, you throw a little harder, you hit a little bit better. But that has nothing to do with the quality of the human and the person. So I said, you know, we're getting cheated. We're getting cheated. We need to be able to offer that to our student athletes because as far as being good people, working hard, aspiring to greatness, all the things that you and I, you know, talk about as coaches, we have that at Whitewater. You might have that at, at another school as well. So, so my vision was always to create the best version of a Vanderbilt, UCLA, Arizona State that we can. And I mean the best version because many of those places have had plenty of scandals along the way, right? So, so can we build that? And, and part of it is that connection you talked about, having an alumni base. So um, how do we do that? Well, um, I think it started when it comes to the alumni base. It started with Mills, all right? He, he, he was there for 38 years 
40 years before I got there. Okay. So by the time I kind of got there, he, well, I shouldn't say, but by the time I was the head coach, he had been there 38 years. So I, he knew almost everyone who ever played in a Warhawk uniform and along the way introduced me to them. So I, I, I know people from who played in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties and the nineties. And that's for me, that tradition is the start of building a program. So uh, I guess in a long story, uh, to make a long story short again, um, I wanted to build, we wanted to build the premier division three program. And we wanted to model it after some of the best division one programs. Okay. So that was our goal. And then how do you do that? Well, I, like I said, it starts with a great alumni base and then it moves quickly into, into your player personnel and your coaches. And uh, I know you had asked me about team building and things of that nature. And, and um, you know, I'd be happy to elaborate more on that if, if you want. You know, kind of the secret sauce, and I don't know how secret it is, but you talk about the player personnel and your coaches. I'd love to hear about both. Let's start with your coaching staff, actually. Who's on staff right now? Kind of what are their roles? Um, how do you split that up? Yeah, so, so right now I'm fortunate to have, um, you know, and, and this was not always the case. You know, I was the first full-time assistant coach ever at Whitewater that was hired that way. So, so prior to that, you know, they're like every program, there's got to be a start, right? And, and, and I think uh, in, in high school programs all over the state, you may or may not have an assistant. You may or may not have any money to pay them. So, so you, you try to address that. And fortunately for me, I've always had at least one assistant coach, okay? Um, currently, it's, it's a, a former player by the name of Steve Bartline. He's from South Milwaukee originally, played for a high uh, coaching legend, and, um, and, and was a very loyal, hardworking student athlete for me. Uh, ended his career as a captain on some very, very good teams. Um, he's a teacher by trade, spent a couple years over in Brookfield teaching, and then I, I solicited you know, him to come back. And fortunately he accepted, he, he handles my, uh, coordination of recruiting. And he's also my number one assistant coach, uh, spends a lot of time with our hitters, but also uses, a, we use him other ways as well. Um, then I just hired uh, Cal Aldrich, who's another former player. He's my uh, second full-time assistant. And, uh, he does a lot of, uh, facility work for me when he's not coaching. Uh, but then, you know, he's going to be very active in all aspects of coaching for me. He's young. He's, he's a hell of a player and, and a really strong young man. Um, and then we have some part-time guys. And I call them part-time guys uh, because I pay them as a part-time coach. Um, but they're full-time coaches. So Armando, who you probably know, Hernandez, he's been with our program for over 20 years. Um, and what a, what a stable and consistent um, coach he is. Uh, He's been with us for a long time and handles most of the defensive work. And then we have Tom Clawwitter, who, who Claw uh, was a former pitcher with the Minnesota Twins. And um, I always give him a, a hard time because he's the only one on our staff that wasn't smart enough to play at Whitewater. He actually played somewhere else. Okay. But he was smart enough to send his son to be my shortstop. And we won a, a national title with him at short. So when Claw retired, from being a legendary football coach, he, or excuse me, basketball coach, he came on and joined the staff. So, so right now that's who we have. And then we got an awesome, not to, you know, diminish his importance, but we have a, a young uh, student uh, by the name of Ryan Hogan, who, uh, who's, who's basically our baseball ops guy and, 
and he high energy guy. And other than the fact that he loves Michigan is a class act. Absolutely. So that's our staff. They work really hard. Um, you know, I, I always set the priorities as follows loyalty first work ethic, second technical competence, third. Right. And, and I think so much of education, unfortunately, has changed that, you know, we're talking about STEM and we're talking about technical competence and all that's good. I mean, if you don't know anything about baseball, it's going to be hard to coach baseball. But before you get to that, that's kind of, you need some other things you need, you need initiative and work ethic. And for me, loyalty is a big thing. And so I think if you look back at our staff, the vast majority, I would say probably all but one or two coaches over the last 20 years, we're products of our program. And, and so, you know, that helps us in a number of ways. And, and the number one way is it, is it allows us to be consistent with what we teach and, and the standards we hold. So like you mentioned, a good segue to some of these guys that played for you are now coaching for you. So something yeah. in their experience that wants to keep them, you know, part of this university, part of this brotherhood. So what was it, you know, what team building stuff, what, what things are happening what, what are you manufacturing inside that, that organization to keep them so tight and, and so loyal to this program? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I would say this, um, you know, you had mentioned, you had jot, jotted down a couple things as far as team building, fundraising. And uh, I don't remember what the third part of that question was. Um, but, but basically I guess I'd start by simply saying team building is in, in essence, building of a team. That, that is not something that you do in part. And uh, one of my pet peeves coaches is right now we live in an internet generation and I get it. And uh, we've also gone through 10 plus years of mental coaching, right? Coaching the brain and how important that is and, and those types of things. And I'm sure we could talk about all the experts out there about that. Here's the issue. You bring in someone or you go to a seminar they give you some good ideas about maybe some team building activities or some mental coaching tips. Okay. But if that's not integrated into your program holistically, and if you simply understand it a little bit, then it's a complete farce. All right. For me to call someone in like Brian Kane and for him to spend a day with my team is, is not, is not where we're going to be. Hold on a second. You're good. All right. Right. I mean, so, so for me, it's like, I love going to seminars. I love talking to others, but if you don't completely master the idea of what it means to, to build a team, um, then, then really it's, it's, it's disingenuous. Um, for me, I think the most important thing of team building is proximity. And what I mean by that is if you're not together a lot, you're not gonna build a team. So think about all the situations where we can, we are in proximity that can build a team. Uh, some of them happen daily. Taking care of your, your diamond at the end of practice. I would say the majority of programs, high school, college age, after they're done with practice, they're expected to do something on the field, okay? To what degree that happens and to what degree the coaches hold that accountable, I think is, is, a, is a, an important reference point because I would say most people, by the time, you know, some things are done, there's people already picking up their bags and things like that. So number one, you got to be in proximity. Number two, you got to go through something together. Taking care of the field is important. Doing maintenance projects around your field, important. Cleaning our clubhouse, 
We have no custodians to clean our clubhouse or our field. We do everything at our stadium from start to finish by ourselves, including picking up garbage at the end of the day, including going and playing a doubleheader and then going into the stands and picking up the soda, the soda cans and, and pop and, and popcorn that you've left there. All right, we do that. Um, so those are two examples. Fundraising opportunities, that's, that's a role. And, and as you go through these things, if your team has successes, whether it's as simple as maintaining your stadium or taking care of the field or, or raising some money for a cause, whatever it, whatever it is, those successes build team unity as long as they're directed properly. So, so for me, like I said, my pet peeve is I'm going to go bring in someone and he's going to talk to my team about mental toughness and, and being a team and team building. And we, we're going to go to a ropes course and we're going to run around the ropes course. And then we're going back to Menominee Falls. Well, what happens then? Right. That's what's the key. So, so for me, it, it's, it's all part of what you do as a program. Uh, one of the traditions, that was the other thing you wanted me to talk about. Part of team building is the traditions you keep. Well, um, our probably one of our stories, storied traditions would be the steak series. It's a best of seven series, purple versus black. Captains select the teams. We have a draft and the losers buy steak dinner for the winners. Well, we buy the steaks. They pay for them. Coaches cook them. Players eat. We're together all together. Now this year, we our steak series dinner was, uh, boy, it might have been in December. And it was outside and it was cold because of COVID. So the only way we were able to get everyone together was in an outside uh, pavilion. And we were socially distanced. And yet we were together, um, at least in proximity, enjoying the fruits of our labor. So um, the winners always eat first, the losers always eat second, um, it, but everyone eats. So those are some ways, fundraising camps. We hold a camp program. I, I love camps to see who understands the knowledge we've tried to teach them and who works hard. You can see that based on how they work camps. So um, for me, those are just some, some quick thoughts and some quick things that you can do um, you know, with your team to build build some cohesion. And um, like I said, I think with our era of experts, there's a lot of experts out there, but um, um, hold on a sec, my phone's going off here. All right, sorry about that. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, long story short, I mean, for me, that's, those are the elements to team building you get, you build a team and you build it by proximity. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you talk about, Hey, you know, we're having a leadership day and then, Oh, we covered that. Or we're having a, we're having a mental skills day. We're going to watch a, you know, a Revisa video or a Brian Kane video. And then, Oh, right. we covered that already. They should have their pre-pitch routine down. We covered it in the first week. I just was, Think about how many times I've seen that, you know, and probably done it myself, you know. And once again, I worked with Brian Kane and Revisa obviously is a legend in our industry, but, um, and once again, I know we're in an era of outsourcing, right? That, you know, you want to pull the, but if, how about just, my opinion is you should take those things and you need to develop your own strategy. And what typically happens, it's a moment in time. And, and I think this is true of almost everything we do 
Um, you know, we all start with good intentions. We all want to do certain things, but then we move on past that. And, and I think, you know, take, take the information you learn in sessions and make it your own, master it and implement it into your program in a consistent fashion from day one to day 200, right? And, and so how do you build a team? You build it slowly, consistently by things that you completely understand and master, not concepts that you have someone that has to come in and explain these to you. Because how can you possibly implement and execute something that Brian Kane knows, but I don't really understand. Mm -hmm. So, so even if you're not as good as those coaches, just you need to take your pieces and you need to build your program. And I think consistency and proximity are more important than, than, you know, how great they look on the internet. So a lot of time you spend together is in practice. Okay, so what is your process of scheduling a practice? Obviously, it's, there's a lot of variables, time of year, weather, everything else, but how do you and your coaches get together and, and plan out your practices? What does that process look like? Um, yep, and I'm texting my son to go pick up my dog. Hold on. <laughs> so the first thing is I, I think, I think – um, you know, one, one, of, one of the difficulties in football, and once again, I was a multi-sport guy, and, and, you, and I think coaching is about pulling what is important from all aspects. But one thing I see in football, and it's because of how big the teams are, is you rarely see someone changing their offense, right, from year to year. And there's a number of reasons for it, but one of them is because it's so tough to implement an offense. But certainly, as you look at football across the board, you can't tell me that every, every, every program in the state has a quarterback that throws well enough to be running the spread. All right. Yet the high majority of offenses are running those types of offenses. Well, why? Well, because they implemented the offense and that's what they're going to try to work on getting good at. In baseball, we don't have to do that. In baseball, we can take our abilities and we can start to talk about how we want to play. And it's that phil philosophical decision that starts the planning process, right? Um, God, I have a lot of guys that, that run well. I think offensively, we're going to run a lot. I think we can bun a lot. Um, well, then you better coach with that a lot. So philosophy, I think, is the starting point for how we go about our business, right? So um, if, if, if you want to be a, a defensive team, then you better spend some time on defense. So number one, philosophy has something to do with it. Number two, um, I think all, all programs probably have to go through the following segments in practice. And it always starts with a warm-up, right? There's going to be a portion of practice where we're, call, we're calling it the warm-up. How you guys warm up may be different than how, how Homestead warms up, okay, um, or how Burlington warms up. And that's fine. This is what I would say about the warm-up. I've never won a game because we're good at warming up. All right? I've never won a game because someone knows how to stretch or, or dynamically warm up. You win because you're good baseball players, not because you warmed up really well. So if you're taking 30 minutes to warm up and you're practicing two hours, you've just spent 25% of your time doing something that can't help you win. Now, granted, I get it. You can't get hurt. You don't want anyone to get hurt because if your best player is hurt, you can't win. I get that. Okay. But this is what I'd suggest, that that segment should be 20 minutes or less. You should be efficient. 
and attentive to warming your body up properly and you should integrate sports specific training in it. All right. Anytime you can be playing the game of baseball, you should be playing the game of baseball. Baseball games are won by baseball players, not by guys who are great at doing the Spider-Man stretch. All right. So um, first of all, know that that warm-up isn't helping you win and make sure you do it properly, but add sports specific movement. Number one, number two, um, I've always believed that this is a game of catch. And uh, if you talk to Coach Fuller at all, which I think is maybe, you know, the grandfather of baseball in Wisconsin, or at least one of them. And I, I say that specifically because I want him to know how old he is. But um, he tell you it's always been a game of catch, right? So, so I think that has to be an important piece of what you do. You have to teach people how to play catch. Once again, adding sports specific movements, you know, in baseball, you're going to be moving. All right. So, so we need to have a warm up that's sports specific. We need to have some type of throwing program. We need to have uh, player development pieces, which include fielding and hitting. And I think those are the important things. And then, and then there should be a team piece to it. But when, once again, when you look at it, I still believe that the vast majority of games are won by baseball playing, doing baseball activities, hitting, pitching, fielding, throwing, running. All right. Now you want to talk about team defense. Great. We can talk about team defense. Um, but if you can't throw and catch, then, then how, in, how, how great are your first and third coverages going to run? Not very good. Right. Because almost every first and third coverage I've ever seen diagrammed is contingent on a good throw and a good catch. So once again, I think there has to be a lot of situational work and defensive work um, at the end. But I think those are the segments, right? A, a short warm-up that's sports-specific. There has to be a throwing piece almost daily. There has to be a good offensive block, a defensive block. And then if you have time, some defensive time. Um, of course, that can be changed throughout the year. Um, of course, it can be changed based on your needs. And most importantly, like I mentioned at the start of this, it should be absolutely tailored to your personal philosophy. All right. If, if you want to be a good bunting team, then you better practice bunting. All right. And in all those cases, when we talk about baseball, um, I think the more pressure and game speed you can create in practice, the better and more comfortable they'll have. They'll, they'll be at doing that in the game. So, you know, what am I talking about? If we're going to do some kind of situational work, um, God, have a base runner. All right. Um, pitchers have to sometimes condition your backup player has to condition, you know, use them as base runners, uh, to, to make the drill work. So, um, they get good reps at base running and your defense feels the pressure of a base runner. So, um, I guess that's, you know, in a, in a nutshell, um, just some thoughts on, on how you would organize a practice. I want to dig in on that creating pressure. You know, a lot of coaches talk about training at or above game speed or over speed machines or shortening the bases. Like you said, putting pitchers out there to run bases. What other things do you guys do to create pressure in practice? Well, for, for, first of all, I think it all comes from we as coaches have to set the standard. Okay. And I used to think this was standard philosophy, but I'm, I'm starting to change. It used to be 
that you have to perform and practice well to play. Now I'm not sure you even have to be at practice to play. If you're the best player and mom wants to go on spring training, you can't hold them accountable to that. Well, I think you should. I think it has to start at number one. You want to get on the field, you better show it to me in a practice. Otherwise, don't expect to be on the field. I don't care if you think you're the best player. I don't care if you played at another place and, and you're supposed to be good. But if it doesn't happen in practice, you're not going to be playing. So the standard is set by the coach. And holding them accountable has to come from the coaching. Here's a couple things you can do on a very basic thing. Almost everyone in America does, you know, BP. Let's bunt to the right, bunt to the left, and then let's hit some balls, right? Well, usually it's a half-assed attempt to a bunt, and then I get to get some swings, right? Well, hold them accountable. If they don't get the bunts down, they don't get to hit. All right, how about how, about how many times does a coach have to say, you know what, stop popping the ball up into the cage? Well, if you pop the ball up in the cage, you don't get to hit. All right, I mean – I still think most student athletes love hitting, but you have to hold them accountable to that. Playing catch, um, about once a week, I do what's called a cadent catch, which everyone throws the ball at the same time. So if you're on one side, you're throwing the ball to the other side at the same time. That allows me and my coaches to, to see everyone at one time because we still have a, about 35 players. And so we're able to see the movement pattern of every coach as they throw across. Well, guess what? If the ball goes past their partner and there's only one of them, then everyone's waiting for that person to come back. No one wants to be that guy. I mean, I also remember, hey, coaches, hey, you go get it. You throw it over his head that you go get it. I don't particularly love that. But once in a while in the game of catch, if you simply start all the balls on one side and you throw them at the same time, it's going to be obvious who can't hit their target and who can't play catch. All right. And when the whole team is waiting for you to come back, I think that's going to create some pressure. So things like bunting in, in a BP session, things like playing catch. All right. Um, philosophically, you got to decide, how about this one? You hit him a ball and he boots the ball. Some coaches will say, come on, take another one. Other guys will say, too, too bad. Get to the end. For me, I think both of those done at the right time could, could be important to their development right? They have to understand that baseball isn't, you don't get 12 ground balls. And if, if eight and 10, eight, and nine and 10 were bad, oh, I'm going to give you 11 and 12. Look in baseball, you get one chance. So at some point that could be very productive. If he has confidence, however, a confidence issue, then, then maybe you want him to get back in there. You want him to correct his mistake. So those are small, easy things that are done, but there's a reason for everything we do. Every, everything from how we play catch to how we warm up. And for me, the most important thing is accountability, okay? If, if you want them to do something, you have to be there with them and you have to hold them accountable to do so, all right? And, and like I said, this is, this is nothing new stuff, Tim, but it's stuff that I think can be talked, to, talked about and understood. And it's a whole nother thing about how you, how you go about your business and, and how you hold people accountable. I, you know, I... In our role as high school coaches, you know, we, we get a team practice, we get that feel, you know, a lot of guys spend their, you know, they go hit at the academy, they go hit with their guy and it's like individual training, right? And then they get to their team setting. And I think it's just, it's a environment for players to come into that high school team setting. Yeah. yeah. You're operating as a team, not just getting your work in. 
So I, that's really good stuff. And I really appreciate that. Now at the college level and at your level, what type of technology resources are you using in your training, in your practices? Have you guys invested in any places that you've seen a tremendous amount of return on? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, um, this has been an ongoing conversation for us every year for a long time about how we're going to use technology. And uh, can you hear that in the background, my dog? A little bit, a little bit. Huh? That's, uh, hold on a second. All right, sorry about that. Um, so the, the, the technology issue is a conversation uh, Steve and I have had along, and I'm, I'm referring to Steve Barline, our assistant, my number one assistant. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's the younger guy and, and I'm the older guy, all right? So, so he, he wants to use everything, man. He loves it. He wants to look at it. And I love him for his initiative. But these are, these are the conversations we have. Number one, how is it going to help us develop players better, specifically? Number two, when we're spending time with that technology, what could we be doing instead of that, right? And number three, are we using the technology as evaluation only, right? Are we just trying to evaluate? Or can there be something gained from that? For example, let me give you a great example. Um, when spin rate became a big deal, all right, and I'm talking about specifically mostly for, for pitchers, and I uh, went to the national convention, and everyone was selling spin rate machines, rap soto, hit tracks, all that stuff could tell you, you know, when a guy threw a pitch, what the spin rate was. And of course, we do know, know, know now that, you know, the spin rate um, impacts the hit and miss abilities of that pitcher, right? So, so it's an important evaluation tool. Right. People with high spin rates get a lot of strikeouts, get a lot of people to miss the ball. That's good to know, especially if you're doing a draft. Well, I don't really draft and, and you probably don't get a chance to draft. Right. So how are we using spin rate? And for me, as a coach, it would make sense that if Tim Gosler has twenty one hundred spin rate on his breaking pitch, it would be great if it could be twenty two hundred. All right. So I went through booth by booth and I asked them, I said, okay, well, if this is a spin rate, how do we develop spin rate? And guess what? No one in America can tell you that at all. There's a lot of thoughts, but the only one I've, I've come up, I read an article about Tim uh, Trevor Bauer and what he does is he utilizes a spin rate machine along with a, a, a along with uh, a video footage. All right. Slow motion cameras so that he can go pitch by pitch, evaluate the spin rate on that particular pitch and see if he's manipulating the ball either with a grip or arm angle or something like that. Now, if you're doing that at Menominee Falls, then you're a pretty damn good coach, all right? So, all right, spin rate, so how do we use it? Bat speed, great, love bat speed. If I had a choice between a guy who hit 100 or had 100 bat speed and a guy who hit 72, of course I'd pick the guy with 100 exit velocity but you could have a high bat speed 
and be a bad hitter, okay? Because contact also matters, right? So how do we do that? And so, so once again, we have this debate a lot. I still think the best, we, we do chart velocities. Um, we chart spin rates with our pitchers. Um, the most important thing with our pitchers is command. And if that's the case, then you should be, you, you should be charting strike percentage. Every time we throw a pen, we want to know, are they throwing balls or strikes? And here's the deal. We all love coaching the guy who throws 96. But if he throws two strikes out of 10, he's not going to win games. And getting back to one of my other pet peeves, Tim, is right now we're in the era of training facilities. All right, we go in a training facility, we learn how to throw fast, and we throw into a big-ass net. Great. All right? You might be able to throw 96 in a bullpen with your pitching coach, but then the minute you go on the game and you walk a guy on four straight pitches and the opposing dugout starts chirping in your ears, everything that you just learned in that nice, quiet, comfortable bullpen session with your pitching coach that you paid way too much money for is out the window. And now I got to fix it, right? I got to fix that now. So, so whatever technology you pick, it better help you win. Because if it doesn't help you win, then why are we using it? And if you're using it, you better use it and you better use it a lot because otherwise you're just wasting the time. How many times have you said you're going to implement something and never did? All right. So, so yeah, this is a huge topic for me because for sure the trend is keeping up with the Joneses. If you don't have a couple of Soto machines already, man, you're way behind. All right. Um, if you don't get the blast, you know, great. We, you're going to be behind if, if you don't have, a high, you know, spin rate thing, if you're not tracking those things. And I guess I'm here to say, guys, it's still about teaching the game. It's about teaching the game. If those things help you teach the game, then you should use them. All right. If they simply distract and take away your time because you need time to do things, then maybe you shouldn't. And I guess I'd ask you, Tim, I mean, how many times at the end of the day you get done practicing, you've done everything you want to do with your guys and, um, and you got a lot of time left free time. I mean, you just got time. Just, you're just sitting around doing nothing. I mean, use of time is important. So if you don't have time to use the technology properly, then I would say, let's just find another way. So my top technology has and always will be video. I still think we can, we can, we can at least show them, kind of the body positions they need to get into to maximize performance. Uh, for sure, metrics are important. I think, uh, you know, the, the basic metrics, if you want to try to, you know, try to, you know, show them what you're talking about. First pitch strike percentage is, you know, for me, important. Uh, you still got to throw strikes. It's the best pitch in baseball. So um, it's, it's going to be an ongoing thing. We, we seriously, we probably talk as a staff once every, once every, two weeks, we're going to have a conversation that revolves around technology. And if we want to get it, if we don't want to get it, and if we do get it, how do we use it? High-speed camera. We have a great high-speed camera. If, if you have it dialed up at the top setting, it takes a long time to review it. One pitch takes like, you know, 22 minutes. Holy cow. I just want to see a guy pitch and his arms going so slow. It takes 22 minutes. I don't have that kind of time. So I don't know if I need to see exactly his finger pressure on every pitch. So once again, for me, it's always about utilizing your time 
And um, of course, metrics are not going away. They're an important part of what we're doing. Um, and, and especially, I think they can be very beneficial when it talks about evaluation. I was hoping you'd just go with that. So I, I really appreciate that. I really do. And, you know, as, as things are changing, as things are trending, you know, you've seen 20 plus years of high school kids coming into your program. What, what are you seeing right now? How could us high school coaches better prepare our kids for any level of college baseball? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I appreciate it. And as you know, many, many of the greatest coaches around in the state, you've already had on podcasts. And um, I'll tell you, it's, it's really, really good for me to be able to speak to those coaches um, that understand what we're looking for and the type of player we're looking for and has already started to implement and instill those values in their athlete, right? I mean, that's awesome. So when Scott Stoudy calls me and says, hey, I got a guy for you, I, I don't need a huge 20-minute conversation about who he is because I know he understands fully what I'm looking for and what we need. So with Scott and I, it's a, I, you, you want this guy, Bo, done. He doesn't have to tell me how he runs and how he throws. Scott knows I want him because he's done his work. He's been around, he's seen us play. He knows what we need to win. So the first suggestion I would have, and this is true for me when it comes to the next level, we've had 41 players sign pro contracts and so I need to at least understand a little bit what they're looking for. All right. For pitchers, it used to be, don't even talk to me unless he's throwing 90. That number has bumped up now, but that's just a starting parameter, a starting metric. You still got to do a lot of other things if you want to get drafted or sign a pro contract. So, but I do understand what they're looking for. And they're not looking for me to call them up and say, Hey, I got a hitter who's hitting 500 for me. No major league coach cares if he's hit 500 at whitewater. And I don't care if he hits 500 at Menominee Falls, all right? Because the biggest difference at the college level is they're not facing the pitchers they're facing for you. So hitting 500 in high school doesn't mean anything to me because we're not using the pitching staffs that they're going to see. So specifically, if you want players, if you want to do your players the best, you need to understand what college coaches need and you need to know specifically who they are. It's not good enough to say, um, hey, uh, if you want to go to Whitewater, this is what you need. You need to know Whitewater. You need to know how we're different or the same to other schools. And the same thing is true with levels. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves is when they say, hey, I got a guy. He's a D3 guy or a D2 guy or D1 guy. Well, is he a D1 guy Vanderbilt or is a D1 guy St. Bonaventure? You're talking about Chicago State or you're talking about UCLA? That's a huge difference. And if you don't understand the difference and haven't seen them play and don't know what they're looking for and you don't know how they coach, then you're not ever going to be able to put your, your, your players in a good position. So my suggestion is whatever places they think are decent programs, they should go out there. They should see them practice. They should see them play. They should have a conversation with the coaches. And they should get to know what makes their program good or bad or different. That's a starting point for me, Tim. And, and, and our great state has allowed that opportunity to happen a lot. At the WBCA in the past, there's always college coaches there. And, and most of the players we have in our program come from quality high school programs. 
Those are the programs that are moving their guys ahead. And uh, so in short, if you want to help your players play at the next level, you have to see, hear, and touch those college programs. I mean, you got you to gotta know what, what they need. Um, so that, that would be in a nutshell what I think has to happen. So when you're out recruiting, right, obviously some, the talent's going to get you to that game. Something about, right, you've got a recommendation. Something's coming to, to, to your desk that says, we got to go watch this kid play. Yeah. When you're watching the kid play, what are you looking for, you and your staff? What intangibles, what, what, what you know, effort, grit, what, what stuff are you looking for? Well, I would say that at most showcases, um, most games, um, people get crossed off more than they get put on. And I think that's important to share with your student athletes. When we go there, we might be coming for, for Greg Featherston because we heard he can play. And while we're there with Greg Featherston, I've crossed him off the list and 15 other guys that I saw that day because of one of the things you're talking about. They don't play the right way. They don't show enthusiasm. They don't hustle or they just don't have the skill set. For me, the skill set is the, is the prerequisite. All right. So, um, you know, at our level, we have certain requirements from the metric standpoint. So for example, if you said to me, this guy's a, a runner and he runs a, a seven, eight and, um, and he throws 82 across the infield and, and God, he's a great hitter. He hit 400. I'd have to go see him hit because if he can't hit really, really well, the other two things aren't going to play. But let's assume that the reason we're there is because he's a decent runner, a decent thrower, a decent all-around fielder, and can hit. Um, if that's the case, I'm looking for all the other things. I'm looking for, does, does he have some upside? Um, and, and for sure, that's why a tall, skinny guy probably is a higher prospect than some of the other guys. But for me, I think the most important thing you can share with your student-athletes is when we go to a, to a field, we're crossing off names. All right, we know the good guys already, but we're crossing off names. And, and I think for me, it's, it's a matter of who are we gonna be able to get? We need a guy who hasn't quite blossomed yet. And, and then he becomes a star, right? Because if he already threw 90 and ran a 6-6 and could hit from both sides of the plate, I'm not getting him, right? He's going somewhere else. So I'm not gonna spend one ounce of my effort on him. But we do get some pretty talented players. And, um, and, and we do have some, some metrics that we use to, to start the process. But after we started that process, the rest is going to be on all those other soft skills that I know you, you understand. Um, and, and along with, obviously, their upside. So great stuff, Coach. That's How are you doing on time? You doing all right? I'm good. Yeah, yeah, good. All right. So now it's game time. We got through practice, recruiting. Now it's time to construct. I'm listening. You know, you're, you're making your lineup out, you know, throughout the day. Uh, you know, do you have a, a rhyme or reason of who's who's hit where in the lineup? Do you have a, a certain structure to that? Um, go into that for us. Yeah, yeah. So once again, this goes back to philosophy. And, um, you know, I, I think I think you have to you, you have to have a plan but you also have to be open to trying crazy stuff. All right. So let me give you a, for, for instance. So my first year at Edgewood, I came in and they said, you know, you got a baseball team. It's not been very successful, but you have a baseball team. I had 15 guys. And by mid season, I had 12 guys. 
And some of those 15 guys were guys that I saw and I heard they played baseball. And so I recruited them. Well, the 12 guys that finished the season, man, were, were got my respect. All right. Well, I, my lineup there was different than a lot of other guys. All right. My, my philosophy was I want the best hitters hitting the most. So they were in the one hole, two hole, three hole. After that, I just tried to try to put some guys who could, who could put the ball in play. So the situation dictated how I looked at certain things. Talent, a lot of times, is going to dictate how you look things, all right? And what I will say before we get into any more details is um, in an era of launch angles, all right, I still think at most levels, including yours and mine, putting a ball in play matters. Now, not putting a ball in play that just gives back to the pitcher, but contact matters. There's, we can do a lot with contact. We can't do a lot when the catcher's catching the ball at a time, okay? So, so my, my philosophy is at least I want people, I want the ball moving. I want it to be in a, so we want to be tough outs. We want to make sure we have quality at bats. Um, we obviously want to be aggressive, um, but we want to put the ball in play. All right. And, and that, that probably goes completely opposite to what's happening in major league baseball. All right. If you can't put, if you can't put on a great swing that, that, you know, makes the ball move a little bit, then you might as well strike out because hitting a ground ball to shorts and out. Right. So that's how they view it. I, I view it completely differently because you know what you hit, you hit a couple balls to, to your opponent. You never know what's going to happen. So, um, but in general, I want leadoff hitter. You want a guy who can get on. Usually everyone says, God, I want a Ricky Henderson guy who can really run a really fast guy. That's great. All right. A fast guy who's never on base is a horrible leadoff hitter. All right. So you, the leadoff hitter has to be a guy who gets on base Two hitter. Um, I, I'm not a big bunner guy if, unless I have to, but he obviously should be able to handle the bat. And I particularly think your two hitter has to be one, if not your best hitter. All right. Let me tell you why I think that if your one guy is the guy who gets on base the most, that means the hitter that's going to have people on base the most is the two hitter. When people get on base, it changes the pitches hitters get to see. So having people on base is the first piece. Now that you have people on base, you know that they're going to have to change how they pitch. They haven't worked on the glide step enough. They're thinking about who he is, all those things. They're going to start to compromise the pitches they throw to me. So a two guy, for me to take those compromised pitches and bunt, I would rather have him rake one in the right side hole, and now we're first and third. So the two hitter has to be a great hitter. I, have, I, I like lefties there because it also makes it harder for, for catchers and, and we can do more off of that. We can do delayed steals. We can do, be aggressive on the bases. Three hitter is typically your best player. Your four hitter is a power guy. Five is another power guy. Six is the second leadoff, right? Um, and then you get down to seven, eight, nine. And, and once again, I think when you get down to seven, eight, nine, I think you got to look at your personnel and see what you can do. Um, I, I do think that when you look at that whole lineup, you love to see, you'd love to see nine guys who can, who can process the at bat. You know what I mean? Like it's not just guys who hit good BP, but something happens when you step them up in the, in the box in a game, all of a sudden, wow, they kind of look like they know what they're doing and they're, they're swinging at pitches they should swing at. They're, they're taking pitches they should be taking. 
and this whole nother dynamic happens even without the mechanics of the, of the swing, right? So, um, so those are kind of the deal, but you know, I don't know how many baseball programs at any level can say, God, let's, let's really talk about what that seven hitter is or what that eight hitter is. And for sure, six and nine, you know, I think traditionally get on base a lot or get opportunities to start innings a lot. Um, I think the number six hitter and the number nine. So whatever you choose to do, have a rhyme or reason to how you do it. Like I said, at Edgewood, I wanted my best hitters to have the most at bats, period. They're going to hit in one, two, and three. And then my next best hitter is going to be at four. If you're the worst hitter on our squad, you're going to hit nine, hoping you don't get up enough. All right. Um, so that's how I would view that. Now, you know, your leadoff hitter, sure. Would you like a guy who gets on base and can steal bases? Sure. I'd like that in my two hitter as well. So, you know, I've given you some, some textbook things, but I think it ultimately comes down to how you want to play. And, you know, if you're a, an Ernie Millard who used to be at Homestead, man, you know, Bunning was a big part of his game. His lineup should have taken that into consideration. Um, legend from Arrowhead, man. I used to watch him a lot. O'Driscoll, man, he used to bun his, his butt off. Um, that better have something to do with how you set up your lineup. Um, so, yeah, all those things are important. Do you have a specific question about anything well, else? I, I, I guess, I mean, it, it kind of just picking up like personnel. I mean, you're looking at your personnel and philosophically, you know, if you're a bunt guy, if you're a hit and run guy, you know, if you like to be aggressive on the bases, I think it, as long as your lineup construction is playing into your philosophy and the personnel that fits that kind of back to your initial point about, you know, your football coach who runs a spread and it should be running the triple option, right? right. You can right. see, see what you do. So now you've got your nine guys and you're coaching third base, right? you're standing at third base. I think this is something coaches would love to hear more about is, you know, the things that you're looking for in the third base coaching box, you know, you got a lot of things going on over there. Give us some tips for this. Yeah, so so the first thing I would share with you is is my philosophy with base running is that we want to develop base runners that are as self-sufficient as possible. That that's a huge deal. I mean, if you think about the lowest level, I used to coach, you know, I coached every level because I had kids and and sometimes when we didn't have coaches, I was asked to coach. So think about that, you know, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old when the ball goes past them and you have to yell for the guy to run or not run. I mean, we want to be as far away from that as possible. We want them to be able to make decisions on their own because we know a good decision on the basis is as good a play as a diving play from third. So the first thing I would say, share with you is self-sufficiency is a key for me. And we do a lot of reps in so that they can kind of understand how to run the basis. Okay. There are some times when I need to get involved. I need to get involved when they can't see the ball. Uh, for sure. That's, that's one of them. Um, for sure. I have to give some signs. So we need to work on that process. And, and for me, most of all, for the hitter, how he processes that while stays focused on, on the task at hand, which is hitting, that's tough for a lot of high school hitters. You know, it's either one or the other, they're either really focused in here or, or, or they're, they're looking at the coach and, and then they have to get back into this right mindset. So keeping it simple, short number of, of, of signs. And, and when there's nothing on, explaining to them that they can just focus on the game. All right. So those are some thoughts. And then as far as, you know, where you are, you know, if I had diagrams, we could talk about the positioning. You want to be able to see a lot of things. But 
once again, for me, it's self-sufficiency is important. Um, what I what I like to do is I always before number one, when someone gets on base, I'm not going to tell them how many outs. They're going to tell me how many outs. Because you know what happens, Tim, if you say, hey, Billy, two outs. Oh, yeah, 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 I got it. Two outs. And then guess what? Then they run like they didn't know there's two outs. Okay, so they're going to tell me how many outs. I'm going to confirm that. All right, my first base coach is going to do his work and make sure he understands, you know, where's the ball? You know, how many outs do we have? What's the situation? And is there any opportunity? All right, so we'll go through that. I'll give him a sign. And then, and then I'll say to him, you know, know what you're doing if the ball's hit on the ground, on the line, or in the air. And I'll simply go on the ground, on the line, or in the air. That's it. And that just tells them mentally rehearse those three options. If the ball is hit on the ground, hit to the left, hit to the right, back to the pitcher, what do you do? If it's hit on the line, what are you going to do? Um, I'll give you a, a, for instance, I think probably the most poorly taught part is less than two outs runner on second. And if I ask a hundred high school players, if you're at second base and there's less than two outs and it's a piercing line drive through the infield, what do you do? 99 of them will say freeze. But if you freeze, you're going to be doubled off to a piercing line drive. So with a guy on second base with less than two outs on a piercing line drive, we're going back. Because if it's hit that hard anyway, you're probably not going to score. So, um, so these would be some things we would already pre-rehearse in drills so that in game day, it's time to go. And, uh, you know, it's something as simple, Tim, as setting up a pitching machine and throwing routine fly balls to the left fielder. Tag plays. You're at third base. Ball's hit. Routine fly ball to third. What are you going to do? Show me how you get back and get in good position to run. Show me seeing the catch that you understand to see the catch and show me how you're going to take off and, and score. It gives your outfielders a chance to actually work on tag plays. All right. So, so that would be an example, or, um, you know, you could easily put a guy in first base, hit a fungo to one of your outfielders line drive. And then he has to decide, is he going to go to third or not go to third? Don't look at me. You're right there. Ball's in front of you. The only ball he has to look at is the one behind him. So, um, once again, I mean, we could sit here and talk about each particular situation, but once again, my philosophy is my job is to make them the most self-supportive base runner they possibly can and use me in some particular situations, scoring maybe where their back is to the throw runner going from first to third with, with the ball behind them. And then the rest of the time, I'm just, I'm just reinforcing uh, the mental rehearsal piece. What are you doing on the ground? What are you doing on the line? What are you doing in the air? All right. And my first base coach is talking about where's the ball, how many outs, what's the situation and where's there an opportunity? That's good. You know, that's great. It's, I think about high school guys, you know, we're in the gym a lot, right? If we don't have a turf field and you get outside, you get excited to get outside you think, all right, what, you know, what we need to cover that can be done. You know, we can, we can shoot that ball up in the air and, and see a, a, a live rep and, and create efficiency with with our players and build that IQ. Yeah, that's great stuff, Coach. And so you've went through so much stuff already. Leave us with something else. Leave us, you know, give us some parting thoughts for for, for high school players, high school coaches. Um, what else you got in, in your pockets for us? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, this is the only thing I'll say. The the game has changed. All right, there's some elements that have changed in the game. 
um, you know, for, for a number of years there where we were playing some summer high school baseball and, and select baseball, um, there was a big rub, all right? But what I guess I'm asking for all coaches in the state, whether it's at a high school or it's at, you know, GRB hitters or sticks Academy. All right. What, whatever you're at, let's be in it for the, for the student athletes in, in their baseball piece. And I also am a big believer that high school sports should, should always be an important part of what we do. All right. And let me tell you why, um, as I've traveled throughout the world in all of, all of the countries in Europe, they have a completely different setup. They have no sports in the school. All their sports are in clubs, all right? So if you went to Menominee Falls High School, there would not be any teams at Menominee Falls High School. They would not fund any of that. You would have to, at the end of the school day, you'd go to, you'd join a club, you'd pay them some money, and you'd be on that club team. That is how all, all sports happen in, in, um, in Europe. Every time I go, they tell me how we're completely cheating the world because we have the best system out there. And that's because we've integrated athletics into every level of our education, all right? Now, I'm not being a proponent for high school sports because of that, but I am saying this. I believe that sports in high schools and in schools started because it was a great way to foster community relations. I still think that should be the key of what we do. I'm not saying these other entities aren't an important part. And I guess my, my kind of my final thing is high schools and schools are an important part of the community. There should be athletics in those entities. We should continue to use those sporting events to help develop the individual. Having said that, we also have these awesome training facilities outside of school and we need to use them together. So high school school, you know, coaches like yourself have to pair in with, with select coaches and, and our focus has to be doing the things that are best for the sport and for the student athlete. And I think now that we're playing mostly spring baseball and not playing summer baseball, I think these two entities really are aligned really good to give a baseball player a great exam, a, a great opportunity. I can play all spring for my high school and, and I can train in, in the off season at, at a, at a training facility. And then when summer hits, I can transition into some kind of select team. It gives me some more opportunity to play the game. And, uh, and that's how it used to be, you know, for most of the state with Legion baseball, you, you were able to play from March all the way until August. And I think if there's a parting, I guess, comment to me is we're all in it for the same reasons. We want good baseball and good baseball players. And I think we can do that if we all work together. And there it is. Huge thank you goes out to Coach Vo for taking time out of his busy schedule to sit down with us today. Um, once again, I'm just blown away by, you know, the amazing baseball men inside of our state, how much they're willing to share, and just the takeaways. I mean, I'm taking notes, listening to these coaches, and I just am so grateful they're willing to take time out of their day to help us out. Um, just another reminder to subscribe and share on social media or to, you know, send on your, on your coach's group text as we build up towards um, the spring of 2021, you know, as we're all excited to get back to baseball when um, baseball does return here in the spring. So until then, I appreciate you tuning in and listening and have a great rest of your day.